Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Teaching dogs to walk nicely on leash is kind of the holy grail of pet dog training. We need them to be on leash more often than not in our society. And there's a reason that the no-pull device industry is a big one. Google dog pulls on leash and you will find so many different solutions to this widespread problem. It is baffling. And the bad news is you're not actually going to find any solutions that universally work without causing harm or fallout. The industry for no-pull devices is a big one. Gazillions of dollars each year spent on no-pull harnesses, head halters, and other products. Because we need the dog to be on leash a lot of the time in our society. And the dog doesn't want to be on leash, and they pull really hard. And then it's annoying at best, painful at worst. It can also be dangerous. I've had clients pulled over by their dogs as their dog was in hot pursuit of something, maybe the squirrel or maybe even the dog across the street, and severely injured. For me, my chronic upper body pain really cannot tolerate being pulled on leash at all. For that reason, I've spent a lot of time thinking about loose leash walking. I've tried everything I've seen, and I've been in dog training a really long time. Through that, I have landed on kind of a handful of techniques that work for me. I'm going to talk about some of them now. But first, I'm going to go through what the mistakes are that are being made in this training process so that you can avoid them. A really common way that force-free trainers like to teach loose leash walking is called the red light, green light game. And essentially, it is leash goes tight, red light, put on the brakes, don't let the dog keep moving. And then as soon as the leash slackens, green light, keep walking. For me, this largely produced an unpleasant yo-yo effect in which the dog would hit the end of the leash, realize you had stopped, slacken the leash, sometimes by sitting, sometimes by sniffing, sometimes by turning back towards the person, And then you'd start walking again, they'd hit the end of the leash again, and the whole cycle continues. Most folks give up on it, it's obnoxious, it's not working very well, and the dog just winds up pulling. Instead of the yo-yo, I've developed something that I call slow your roll, (laughs) which is instead of stopping, I want you to just walk slower. Having that environmental change, that kind of change in the way that the outcomes are being produced for the dog, I find avoids the yo-yo in surprising ways. So essentially the dog is pulling, the the leash is tight. I'm going to walk painfully slow. The dog 
loosens up the leash, is walking nicely, I'm going to speed up. I'm going to walk much faster. That's accessing the functional reinforcer here. The dog just wants to go and wants to go faster than humans normally walk. And that's why they're pulling in the first place. Another way that folks teach loose leash walking is by feeding. So they click and treat the dog for a slack leash. They feed the dog right at their side, or they might even feed the dog on the ground. When we use food as a reinforcement for loose leash walking, we tend to produce other behaviors. This is a nice way to produce a loose heel. It's certainly not going to be a competition precise heel, but the dog is going to walk next to you and they're going to be looking up at you waiting for the food. That might be what you want in a variety of circumstances. But an average person taking their dog for a walk on a leash wants their dog just not to pull. They want the dog to enjoy the walk, to sniff, to move around, to use the full length of the leash. They just don't want their arm yanked out of the socket. Using food to produce loose leash walking will not produce that for you. Why? Because the food is a superimposed contingency. The food is not what the function of the pulling was. And so it's just a brand new game. It's just an entirely different set of behaviors than the one that you're actually interested in affecting. So if the real goal is for the dog simply to understand avoidance of leash pressure, then the first thing you might want to teach them is about how to respond to leash pressure. Generally speaking, I don't like to teach dogs to avoid anything. I like to teach dogs to seek reinforcement. And so I can show them that leash pressure is a cue to do something else. I do this by putting a little bit of leash pressure on, and when they move towards that pressure, marking and rewarding. I progress it to using leash pressure to ask them to turn away from the reinforcer and then sending them back to the reinforcer. And finally, when this is trained, I can actually use that leash pressure as a cue to inform them that they need to keep that leash loose in order to access the stuff they're pulling you towards, the stuff they want. So hint, big deal for my agility dogs, they need to walk on a slack leash up to and into the ring in order to get to play. So if your true goal in leash walking is for the dog simply not to pull you around, I hope that you will join me. I am teaching a webinar on this coming up September 6th, 5 p.m. Pacific. Your link is going to be in the notes. You will find it at cogdogclassroom.mykajabi.com. The webinar is called I Don't A Rod, which is a silly play on the word I did a rod, the amazing dog sledding race (laughs) that happens every year in Alaska. This came about because I joke that my dogs are not allowed to be in the I did a rod, meaning they are not allowed to pull. And a friend of mine who is kind of the queen of dad jokes said, you should call the webinar I Don't A Rod. So that's what it's called. And I hope that you'll join me. If you can't come to the air date, that's fine. It will be recorded. And of course, it'll be available evergreen in my membership. I've got a lot more tips than I gave you here. So if you found what I had to tell you interesting, I hope that you'll join me and I'll see you there. And now a few Patreon questions. The first one comes from Connor. Connor writes, prompted by an online discussion regarding inaccessibility of off-leash time in nature. 
We all talk about needs a lot. What is your definition of needs? If there are needs that can't be met for our dogs, how do we talk about that? And can we find ethical workarounds? Ah, yes, the tale is old as time. (laughs) I do say that dogs need off-leash time in nature, and I don't budge on that. That is pretty much the hill I will die on. The fact that it's not super accessible for people does not change the fact that it is a basic need. I define a need as something that, you know, especially in this context, as something that is required for the dog to have kind of mental health, mental wellness, maybe even physical wellness. This is not a kind of top tier need as far as if they don't have it, they will die. But I'm not talking about stuff that they need or they will die, generally speaking, in my work. The dogs that I'm working with, they are fed, they are watered, they have shelter, they have vet care. Like those basics are really met. So then we're talking about next tier needs, which is now what do you need to be behaviorally sound? What do you need to be able to be sleeping on your back in my office right now, which is what two of my adorable dogs are doing? What do you need to avoid kind of maladaptive behavior patterns in your life? Off-leash time in nature, I find, is, is one of those things for all of the dogs that I've worked with and all of the dogs that I've owned. There are certainly better ways to provide it for some dogs. Some dogs that are really hunty, for instance, might do better with a certain kind of access than others. But freedom to move their body in nature is a basic thing that dogs would access if we gave them freedom over their own lives. And so therefore, that's a need for me. Now, It's not accessible for everyone. And what that means is that you need to fill the gaps other ways. I would say that captive animals in zoos are probably missing out on some of the things that they need because they're not out in the world where they belong, able to access everything that they would access if given the freedom to do so. But the really high-level zoos that some of my friends work in work really hard to fill those gaps in for those animals with enrichment programs. So if you can't provide this for your dog, it's up to you to provide more other stuff that they need, different kinds of enrichment programs, and try your best to fill in those gaps. All right, next one comes from Mel. Mel writes, how do I know if my five-month-old rescue mix, Lupita, cute name Mel, is social or anxious and having big feelings or both? So... Are we social or anxious or both? Got it. Context. I'm still working on figuring out how to introduce people to her. And as of now, Lupita will bark with hackles up when meeting someone for the first time. I tell people to ignore her, sit and not make eye contact. She'll eventually approach. And then after a bit, she'll start jumping on them in an energetic way, pause up and getting a little bitey. This is the same behavior that she has with me when she's playing slash excited. I'm confused if she's comfortable in initiating play or if she's uncomfortable and doesn't know what to do with her feelings. Usually after these events, she'll calm down and rest either by the person or somewhere else in the room. Okay, Mel, you can't really know what her emotional world is. So what you can know is what are her behaviors and What are they looking like? And does that look healthy? And does that look kind of fun for her? You say that she's barking with hackles up and that you have to make people ignore her and that she'll eventually approach. And that's assuming that you're hanging around them. That means that her first choice is avoidance. Her first choice is telling these people to leave her alone. But you are putting her in circumstances where you're kind of push you are pushing the issue you're asking people to ignore her but since they're still in her circle in her presence 
You're pushing the issue. I worry that the behaviors you're describing that come next are actually her way of asking them to go away in an escalated way. So I would not have these, this dog be meeting people. I would have this dog be practicing skills, working with you, learning lots of behaviors in a lot of different contexts. I would put a vest on her that says, in training, do not touch so that nobody approaches her. Teach her that you're not going to let anyone approach her. And she never has to say hi to them. And in fact, if you do hang around with a person, like maybe maybe you get to a point where you're in your skills, where she's ready to do a downstay near you at a coffee shop while you're having a cup of coffee while people are walking around. If someone is sitting near you and she tries to pull you over to say hello to them, she isn't allowed to. She has showed you that she kind of doesn't know how to override her, ask her to come back and keep feeding her. What will happen is she will feel less anxious about these situations because she's not going to be expected to be social. And then what you'll start to see is that maybe some friends that she's around a lot who have always ignored her and who she's always been also asked to ignore, she shows you better behavior. She's only five months old. She is a baby and she's entering her adolescence, which means that her brain is just really dumb right now. And, and yeah, socially worried. It's now time for you to intervene and not allow these kind of big behaviors that are probably yucky for her, although we don't know for sure. I would be working really, really hard on my skills training, not so much on saying hello to people. It sounds like she doesn't have the skills to do so. And Mel, if you're not in my membership, I would love to see you over there. You can go through the Teenage Tyrants course. You can post about her and get some feedback from me and the rest of the group. Next one comes from Elise. Elise gives us the TLDR up front and says, agility and sudden environmental contrast reactivity. Let my dog approach the scary thing or work through it. I will say up top before I read the rest of it, probably it's going to be Ask your dog not to approach the scary thing. Give your dog some skills, but let's go through. My one-year-old healer lab pitbull mix, Laszlo, is doing fantastic at learning agility 90% of the time, and the other 10% of the time, he is barking. His reactivity seems to be triggered by sudden environmental contrast. He's completely fine working around other dogs and humans until something unexpected happens, like an assistant comes in through the back door. His reactions look like staring at the new thing, nearly always a human, barking, lunging, often paired with wagging, and sometimes with rolling onto his back. If I allow a greeting slash allow him to approach a scary thing, he'll make friends with it. If he doesn't get to approach a scary thing, he takes longer to calm down, but usually can start working, focusing again within a couple of minutes. I want to help him ignore the scary things. My current approach is to try and calm him and redirect his focus back to work. Is that the right path? Can I do anything to help him get back down to earth faster? Okay, Elise. So first of all, your dog's a year old, which means he does not have a smart brain. He is an adolescent. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, he's not making good choices, okay? Running up to somebody barking is not a good choice. Whether you wind up changing your mind and thinking they're nice or not, it's not appropriate for you to run up to them barking. And in fact, the pattern of I charge and bark and then I make friends will not go away if it continues to repeat. And as he gets older, it could escalate. It could no longer be friendly because that initial reaction is not friendly. He should not be allowed to approach and he should also lose his turn. So he shouldn't be allowed to keep doing agility on that turn either. So if that happens, his turn should be over. He can come back out and he can show you if he 
is capable of working again. Agility is a privilege. If he likes doing it, which he should, if he doesn't like doing it, you shouldn't be doing it. So if he likes doing it, it is a privilege that he gets access to for paying attention to you and staying engaged in the game. Now, removing him from the space, like taking away agility, that's not a behavior modification plan. Hear me loud and clear. That alone is not gonna change this for you, but it should be your response if it does happen. You should also be working really hard to prevent it from happening in this context. I don't want him to think this happens a lot in agility and practice this behavior in agility because I have bad news for you. Sudden environmental contrast happens in trials too. And if this is a practiced established thing, he's going to charge and bark at somebody in the ring someday. And then you might get banned from doing agility. It's not something that they get to do in that context. So I'd be really serious about it. If you can't prevent it, I'd be thinking about then how can I orchestrate this class differently so that I can prevent it? Also, what's happening in real life? You're only talking about agility here. Is this happening in real life? If this is happening in real life, I'd be working really hard with a behavior consultant to get through it because if it's happening in real life, it's going to happen in agility, it's going to snowball, etc. Like it has to be handled everywhere. But correct, allowing him to approach is, even though it seems better, like it seems like he gets to calm down that way, you are just reinforcing it then, right? So like, it's not about, don't think as much about his feelings as you are thinking about what's the behavior response that I want, because he's gonna have the same feelings one way or the other and changing this behavior pattern will change his feelings and allowing him to continue this behavior pattern will re continue to reinforce the pattern. Again, love to see you in the membership as well, working through the Teenage Tyrants course. Next one comes from Sarah. Sarah writes, one thing I tend to do with my puppies is I hide from them, by which I mean I surreptitiously uh, move to a surprising location when their attention is directed elsewhere so that I can feed them when they find me. I also occasionally do this with my dogs when we are off-leash in nature. When I adopted this strategy from a seminar presenter, my goal was to teach my dogs to keep an eye on the human, and I didn't think critically about it. Do you think this game is problematic or okay? Of course, I also do lots of feeding for offered check-ins. Sarah, I think that you need to ask the dogs if it's problematic. I'm sure that there are some dogs that do okay with this. It's, it's a really common method, and so I don't think it would persist if it caused like lasting damage for any dogs. I did used to do this like 20 plus years ago. I didn't do it to Iggy because she was always glued to me, and she's almost 15, so the last dog I did it to would be the dog before her. I haven't done it since. I don't think inducing that little moment of panic is necessary to teach them to keep their eye on you. That's why I don't do it anymore. I produce them keeping their eye on me other ways. But if your dogs are fine and they're not anxious and they're not anxiously keeping an eye on you all the time, you're also probably okay. So do I think it's problematic in the sense that it produces some, a really unpleasant little moment for your dog when they go, oh my God, where is she? Yes, but also if it's not producing any problems, I'm not gonna pick on it too much. And last one this week comes from Diane. Diane writes, four and a half year old intact Jack Russell Terrier loved agility training with me until our trainer began demanding he perform perfectly. She would get loud and angry and he would freeze. She says he knows what he is expected to do and is being a stubborn terrier. He now runs the course watching over his shoulder for her. When she corrects him, he now growls and gets aggressive. I've never seen this behavior before and feel I should remove him from the class because it's escalating every week. Do you agree that I should pull him or should I use this as an opportunity for training with distractions? 
Diane, I am devastated. This is malpractice. This person has treated you and your dog in a completely unacceptable way. Absolutely, you get out of that class and never look back. Nothing like this should happen to you. Nothing like this should happen to your dog. I'm so sorry this happened. And for everybody else listening, do not tolerate this kind of behavior from anyone that you are paying for any reason. And not even if you're not paying them, do not tolerate this from anyone. Anything that causes your dog to aggress when they were not doing so in the first place is not okay. And also just nobody needs to be yelled at. And also shut up with the stubborn terrier thing. Sorry, Diane, I'm, I'm very mad. <laughs> Terriers are awesome and your dog is awesome. And this is not distractions. This is abuse. So get out of that class. Whew. <laughs> and that's it for this week. Thank you all so much for your questions. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.